so this is the infamous question-answer period. And I do have a question of you. Uh, there's a questionnaire here that would really help us with our funders if you would fill it out. Um, so I think there's some at the front. There's some at this table. So if you, those of you who are willing would fill it out, I would really appreciate it. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming. It's great speak, speaking, uh, talking about the domestic violence. It's, my question would be, uh, how do you, if you recognize domestic violence at the workplace, could you give us some examples of how to go about reporting it and doing something about it? Well, I think the, the first thing to do is to, you know, speak uh, with the, per, the woman and let her know that there are resources that are available. And know that you're not, concerned, you're not required to be the expert, uh, but to let her know what resources are out there. Like here you've got Harbor House. They have an outreach. They have uh, the shelter is very informed in terms of helping women. And, you know, let it, let it, that be guided for her by, you know, with, with her choices so that those are respected. If you have concerns in terms of, say, absenteeism, uh, you know, in terms of counseling employees, it's sometimes important to be sensitive to the fact that this could be a domestic violence incident as opposed to, well, you're just slacking off and taking longer weekends. I mean, she may be taking longer weekends for a reason. And, and, you know, employers need to be cognizant of that and then look at what counseling and support that they may be able to provide. And so, and maybe it's things as simple as, you know, moving her uh, to, you know, some companies have that flexibility of moving her to another work site or providing her with some time off to be able to deal with some of these issues, but also in terms of providing support. And we've also found, like with some of the employers who've been looking at this issue, they've brought it out in the open. They've actually had uh, uh, staff meetings at women's shelters. And then that has precipitated all sorts of disclosures. And then that has helped management in terms of how to address it, too, because they have this good relationship uh, uh, with their local women's shelter. Uh, there's no one answer because every, you know, the, the dynamics of the abuse can be so different. But it's having that sensitivity and first advising at, that there are resources available and, uh, and make sure that, and, you know, and to direct them to them. Hi, Andrea Glover. Um, I'm very interested in the role that work organizations or companies can uh, play with their security staff. So, for instance, um, if people are not at work, we have the police that are um, there to serve and protect us and domestic violence uh, victims. But what sort of things can security staff do beyond what the police can? And how important is it for um, domestic violence victims to have good documentation and to receive something like an emergency protection order? Well, I guess in terms of the role security can play, and again, it depends on the type of workplace because there are so many different right. workplaces from some that are totally cordoned off, you know, with uh, gated fences that can have security guards watch for individuals uh, through to being aware that there may be someone, say, at a department store that the perpetrator may be coming and harassing her and if they're aware to have him leave the property and call the police. And security services often have a relationship as well with their local police service around, around these issues. Uh, what we found in some of the 
cases where employers have moved forward in having plans in place, it's often a good dialogue between security and the employment assistance program so that they're both working together instead of in isolation. And that's where you've had the greatest benefits in terms of, you know, having that security involved. And also knowing what to do um, and uh, being aware that, you know, if there is an incident, you know, what the perpetrator looks like, uh, that he may be coming, that kind of thing. So that would be, uh, I guess, the piece around uh, working with security. EPOs sometimes work, but they're no guarantee. So having, for those of you, an emergency protection order can be given for a a short time frame if a woman feels she's in danger um, by a justice of the peace and then is later confirmed by the Queen's bench and requires the perpetrator to stay away. And sometimes that works, but sometimes perpetrators think it's just a piece of paper and it has no effect. Um, So what the experience generally has been that you want to, do more than one thing. You want to have a whole array of things in place. But the, again, the earlier the intervention, intervention, the sooner the perpetrator knows it is not okay, the more likely you are to have a good positive outcome. And so having an emergency protection order at a first incident of domestic violence could sometimes be very effective because the perpetrator knows there's consequences. Um, actually work from um, uh, uh, Lundy Bancroft, who is known to be working with perpetrators. He actually tells us that, you know, of all the um, different crimes there are, the one thing we know where jail is effective is in terms of domestic violence crimes because they know that there are consequences for their behavior, so they're not going to do it again. Um, I just wanted to thank you for your statistics today and for your work and also the Harbor House here in, in Lethbridge for doing such noble work. Um, The other question we had at our table was, what happens to the people that cannot get into the shelter? Where do they go when they bone to try and get in and and it's full? So we would just kind of like to know about that. Well, shelters try all sorts of different things. And and sometimes it's very hard to say we don't have room. They may take a woman who has uh, already entered the shelter that is doing better and move her into a hotel. They may call, uh, you know, there's always uh, emergency social services to put a woman up at a hotel. They may try to relocate her to um, another place. She may be okay to say, I'm okay to wait, and I'll try again in a few days. I don't know. Carrie, can you add anything to that? I guess a lot of times it does depend on what community services are provided. Um, I know with us here, um, sending them to a hotel isn't an option because we simply don't have funding for that. But we do have the Native Women's Transition Home, which will take on our our Aboriginal clients as well as the non-Aboriginal. We have partnerships with Tabor and Pincher Creek so that if our shelters get too busy, we can look at um, putting them in another shelter. Oftentimes they may be able to identify friends or family that they may be able to stay on the couch for the night. Um, so we'll just brainstorm with our resources, with whatever resources they can identify as well to try to find the best fit. At the end of the day, if we can't come up with anything, we are usually on the phone with the emergency social services to see if we can get them emotional, excuse me, emergency contact at a hotel. And so just recognize from that that while those women aren't in shelter, they're getting shelter services, and shelters are spending hours trying to help them and, um, you know, don't get compensated that for that in terms of their funding arrangement with government. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, Jan Reimer, for coming to Lethbridge to give us this important message. Um, 
you certainly cl clarified a lot of thinking on my part anyway and uh, as to the extent of it, the, the figures, the number of, of cases that are, that are involved is just staggering. And when you think of that greater problem, uh, of course, it's, going to take, it's not going to be an easy solution. It's going to take many uh, sided solution in order to, to, to uh, handle it properly. Um, and uh, one can't help admiring the, the people here who are dealing with it directly within these centers. But at our table, we discussed the matter that uh, it's very valuable work and has to continue and it has to be expanded. But it is only Band-Aid therapy in a society where, where we are continually becoming more violent. And uh, the thing that came up at our table, too, is that here we are, our sporting uh, events, our, our hockey is becoming more violent every year. Uh, and that's something which, with our new technology, is in our living rooms. You know, this used to be at a distance. It used to be down at the hockey rink where you really didn't see it if you didn't attend those games. It's in every living room, of everybody's room that, that's here in this room today. And these children are growing up seeing this violence, incredible violence on, on TV. Um, that's got to have a major effect. And my question is, how does your society um, address this particular part of the problem uh, and, and uh, how does it tackle the prevention of the growth of violence in our society. It's a tall order. Uh, we're, we're just a, a little organization, but it, um, I guess in particular we look at, as I, I mentioned in um, my talk, we want to involve men, and we want to involve male sports figures to speak out about violence against women and model healthy, respectful relationships. And an example of this is, for instance, Joe Torres, who was with, is with the New York Yankees in the United States. Um, he is a child who was exposed to domestic violence in the home, and he takes the New York Yankees to visit school children to model and talk about respectful relationships. And we need much, much more of that. You know, we've been fortunate. We've had Lanny McDonald come out and speak out about violence against women, uh, Perry Barazan, Craig Henderson, uh, Hugh Campbell. You may recognize some of those names. But it's been hard to get the younger players who are on the ice right now, and I guess it's something we really need to, to work on as well. But we do believe that, you know, by having uh, young men as good role models for boys, that we can get people to understand that there is this difference. Um, and we need allies. We need people that are going to write in and say, you know, there's too much violence in sports or people that write their local TV station about violence or write the CRTC about violence. Uh, you know, if we accept it and we buy the products that advertise it, uh, then we're really condoning it. Um, there's been some talk about um, an ad advocating a, actually a violence t tax in Ontario. Uh, where uh, you tax uh, uh, TV shows and cinemas and movies and, and video games uh, based on the level of violence, and then that would go back to support anti-violence programs. Um, I don't think we're at the place Canada in our national psyche where we'd be able to ban violence. I don't think, you know, we've got that maturity yet, unfortunately. But I think if more people raise their voices against violence, you can make a difference. Jan, could you talk about what happens to the children in these cases that are at home? Well, children who are exposed to batterers uh, 
uh, face all sorts of uh, difficulties and problems. We know that they do more poorly in school. They do generally more poorly in their relationships. Uh, these may be your bullies or your victims of bullies in the schoolyard. Um, and it has a lifelong effect. And so we've really been advocating for maybe 25 years now from shelters that we need more resources to provide supports to children who are exposed to domestic violence. To us, that's critically important. But we've had an uphill battle. Um, it's been really hard to get. Even the child support workers in shelters, the, the salary that the province funds is very low, and the work that they do is truly amazing. And we know if we can get those earlier interventions with children, we can have an impact. Uh, so again, it's a, you know, it really affects kids. People don't think of it. It used to be people would say, well, and even judges today will say, oh, well, they weren't in the same room. They didn't see it, so it doesn't affect them. We know that's not true at all. Um, or they'll say, well, you know, he abuses the mom, but he's a good father to the children. And um, we know that's also not true because if he's hitting mom, what kind of role model is he for the children? But we do have that thinking still on the bench uh, in terms of looking at custody and access issues. It even goes so far as if, chill, if a mother allows uh, her child to see her abuse, that sometimes child welfare will take the kids away. So because she's not being a good mother by allowing the children to witness this abuse, she needs to take them out of that situation. Uh, so there's all sorts of complicated issues around what happens with children. But, we, you know, children also can be very resilient, and some turn out really well and uh, move to end that cycle of violence. Uh, but by and large, it's a hard struggle. Uh, my name is Bob Anderson. Uh, John, I wonder if you could tell us, a little bit about second-stage housing. I realize the limits are on shelters and time and numbers and all that stuff. Is it happening a bit somewhere? What can you say about it? Oh, we'd love to see one right here in Lethbridge, that's for sure. <laughs> so would we. Uh, and I, I know, I guess I have to say hats off to the Lethbridge City Council for writing a letter uh, to uh, Minister Tarchek and government to uh, ask for a program for second-stage housing. Some of you may say, what is second-stage housing? What is she talking about? Well, second-stage housing is uh, the step after an emergency shelter. So an emergency shelter is temporary accommodation. It's 21 days in a communal living environment. You may have, you know, you come and you've got your clothes in a green garbage bag and they're stuffed in a little closet or under the bed. Uh, you're in the same room with your children. You're sharing a bathroom with who knows how many other people. And you're all in a communal living environment for eating as well. So if you're also trying to heal for trauma, it's a bit of a challenging environment, that, that communal living. And so what second stage uh, housing does is provide uh, women and their children with an apartment, but yeah, an apartment that is secure, so it's got extra security and also provides them with groups and support for their children and support for them for six months to a year uh, so that they can get on with their healing and, you know, reinvent their lives. Uh, Second-stage shelters have a tremendous uh, effect. All the studies that have been done show they save the taxpayer money and they save lives and they're effective programs because most women who go through second-stage uh, don't go back to their perpetrator. 
Um, so we have been advocating for a stable, durable funding source for second-stage housing. So if you all want to go home today and write the Minister of Housing and the Minister of Children's Services and say that, you know, if, as part of the reinvestment to kickstart the economy, we want second-stage housing here in Lethbridge, that would be great. We would really appreciate it. <laughs> I just wanted to give some information in response to the gentleman who was asking about what happens for the kids, what services are provided. Through the shelter, we've got a group called Project Child Recovery, and it is designed for children between the ages of 6 and 12 in the school system who are experiencing family violence at home. Those um, referrals for the group would come from the school counsellors themselves. Now, just as an understanding of the background, when you're seeing what's happening in the school system, when kids are acting up in class, oftentimes without the background knowledge, they're being labelled as attention deficit disorder, oppositional defiance, all these diagnostic labels are being put on them. And research is showing that a good portion of those children are simply exhibiting the symptoms of exposure to, women, to women's violence. Um, so the impact is huge. We know that pre-birth, that fetus that's developing within the mother is genetically, on a molecular level, changed by the mother's exposure to family violence. They don't grow the same way as women who are safe carrying children grow. Um, but back to the Project Child Recovery, what happens in that situation is we deal not just with family violence but the bullying that happens on the playgrounds as well because oftentimes they're all woven together. They have those common threads. So children going through the Project Child Recovery group would attend a session once a week for eight weeks and they learn about the dynamics of power and the dy dynamics of violence. They are encouraged to understand that there's nothing that they can do as a child that can cause a parent to act that way and that there's nothing they can do as a child to stop a parent from acting that way, that it's not about them. We know that kids tend to be very egocentric. We give them um, safety planning so that they understand that the next time this is happening at home, they've already got a plan in place of what they can do to go and get safe just for themselves but also to maybe access safety for the mother as well. And then we look at developing um, healthy coping techniques within the kids and um, linking them up with supports within the community so that the needs are looked at. We have a great difficulty in terms of um, reaching an enough people to do it. We've got about five different locations at this point that are hosting the Project Child Recovery groups, um, but we're not funded for that. We have the, um, oh, I'm going to blow it. A local service group here in Lethbridge actually funds that for us. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be able to provide it. And they're at a stage in their um, gathering at this point that a lot of their executive committee are becoming elderly and phasing themselves out, and it's hard for them to attract new people. So we're not even guaranteed of that funding down the road. But um, it is very important that that intervention to stop the violence does have to start with children because this is a learned behavior. Um, so we need to be able to teach them something different. My name's Cheryl Bradley. Uh, Jan, you mentioned that Alberta is the uh, second highest reporter of domestic violence in Canada, I believe. And I'm, I'd like to know whether, uh, there's, we had some discussion at our table about whether that's because uh, people in Alberta are more likely to report, or is it because we have higher rates of violence? And then just a, another, taking this internationally to some extent, I'm wondering how the whole um, situation in uh, Islamic countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan where 
women aren't even allowed to go into the workplace and domestic violence is sanctioned. Um, are there ripples of that that affects what we try to do here in our own countries? Or, or are there things that are happening here that we are doing to try to change this, that attitude in Afghanistan? So two quite different questions. Yeah, Thank two you. very, very, very uh, difficult ones. Um, let me start with Afghanistan, I guess, um, and uh, uh, women's e equality generally. Um, uh, it's been very fortunate to be, I have to be able to meet with shelter workers from around the world as part of the World Conference. And then last week in Ottawa, where we had um, women from Rwanda there, women from Vietnam, uh, women from um, uh, the Philippines, uh, who were, um, you know, able to provide that voice. And in many ways, I find it very hopeful because it's a, I guess in some ways, a, uh, you know, the, the women there are really trying to take on these issues and move them forward and perhaps move them forward on, a, I guess, more quickly than what we've been able to do in terms of, you know, the, move, the feminist movement to, uh, here in Canada. Uh, so it's been a... Um, you know, to, to me, that's really quite heartening. Um, but it doesn't mean that their life is easy. I mean, we hear about Afghanistan and how terrible it is, and now they've just, even though we're putting all these resources in into the country, they're, you know, they've legalized marital rape, right? Uh, so uh, what, what's happening there is horrendous, and if we have a presence there as Canadians, we should insist that, you know, that presence be used to uh, advance violence against, uh, you know, and violence against women. Um, and uh, I don't know if we're doing that with a strong enough voice. In fact, um, uh, we had Women for Afghan Women um, present at our world conference, and uh, the Canadian government wouldn't give a visa for the woman who runs uh, the shelter in Kabul to come to our conference. So, um, you know, we talk about these rights on the one hand and on the other, when there was such a desire to have that kind of connection. And she traveled twice through the Khyber Pass to Islamabad to try to get her visa and didn't get one. Um, so you kind of wonder, um, you know, just where our commitment really is in, in terms of these issues uh, uh, globally. I have great hope with our global shelter network, great hope, because it's the first time we've had that kind of a linkage globally. And if you look at even United Nations organizations or Amnesty International to a great extent or other human rights, there is never a shelter voice there. And so um, having that shelter voice, because it's shelters who are on the front line that see these issues and know right away when there's a change in government policy because it comes that the implications of that walk through their door. Um, so I think that there's great potential with this. And now I've forgotten your first question. <laughs> Oh right, well, yeah. So are they? Are they? Um, uh, you know, how are they calculated? And is it actual incidents or, in terms of uh, like women more likely to be stalked, women more likely to report um, domestic violence? That comes through the general social survey. So it's kind of doing a random survey of Canadians. 
So it's not, I don't know if women in Ontario are more likely to say to an anonymous person on the phone than women in Alberta. I think not. I think it's just we have a higher rate in those cases. Uh, in terms of domestic violence homicides and, uh, you know, the actual uh, cases that go through the criminal justice system, again, uh, the, 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 um, this goes through a, a whole vetting process through Stats Canada and is based on input into um, the CPIC and some of the criminal justice statistic counting systems. Uh, there is a bit of, um, I guess the RCMP sometimes have some trouble in some of their county, but I mean, RCMP just aren't in Alberta. Uh, so again, I think that it's probably indicative that we are more violent. If I was from government, I would say we are, are, we're better reporters. But I'm from the Alberta Council of Women Shelters, and I'm saying, no, we've got a problem. <laughs> Our time is up. Thank you, Jan, for coming today, and I'd like all of us to give her a round of applause. Thank you.